Welcome back to another episode of MPMA's Bug Bites. If you didn't happen to catch our last episode, we launched a fun new format for the podcast, and I also welcomed aboard two new co-hosts to the show, Dr. Jim Fredericks and Dr. Brittany Campbell, my two entomologist colleagues at the National Pest Management Association. As part of our fun new format, each episode we're going to provide a five-minute summary of our favorite scientific discoveries from the month before. To keep things interesting, we invite on a special guest of the show to let us know how we did, critique us, ask us any questions, but ultimately to crown one of us as the coveted title of most nerdy entomologist in the office. Now, I know that may not seem like much, but we are a very fiercely competitive team, so we take this competition and that title very seriously. Our special guest for this episode was Dennis Jenkins, president of ABC Home and Commercial Services of Dallas-Fort Worth, Texas. He's also an MPMA past president. You can't really talk about the pest control industry, past or present, without mentioning Dennis, the Jenkins family, or their family-run business. So it was a pleasure and a privilege having him on with us. And if you know anything about Dennis, you know that he's one of those guys that keeps the room laughing. So we knew we were going to have a great time with him on the show, and he certainly didn't disappoint. All right, everybody. Our, our guest is here. Okay. Wonderful. Okay. Are we ready? Yep. Yes. All right. There he is. Sorry, because my damn dog wanted in the, in the room. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, there he is. I see him now. Hey, Dennis. Hey, man. How are you guys doing? Good. What? How's life in Texas? Oh, thawing out and much better. I mean, it was, uh, we don't handle this very well. It's really, uh, really a problem. And then, I mean, it was as deep a freeze as I can remember. I mean, 2011, so 10 years ago, you guys might remember the Super Bowl was here and we had a ton of ice. It it was kind of like that, only it was worse from the standpoint that I've never had rolling blackouts. Um, and so we're in my house, um, I'd get 45 to 50 minutes of power and then an hour to an hour and a half of not, and then 45 to 50 minutes of power. And you know, sounds pretty bad, but the truth is I had my fireplace going the whole time and, and it was warm enough in the house. It was fine. I mean, I think the coldest we got was probably like right at 60 inside the house, which is, you know, pretty darn livable. For our listeners that, that don't um, know uh, Dennis Jenkins as well as we do, Dennis is calling in to join us today from, uh, from Dallas, Texas. And it is the first week of March right now. And so Texas has been going through some really tough times with some extreme cold weather over the past two, uh, three weeks even uh, there in Texas. Um, you've heard Dennis already describe his first snow and, uh, and some, some ice. <laughs> um, but really, there's been some tough times. And so we're glad, Dennis, that you're able to join us today uh, for the podcast. I know we had to reschedule because you had um, some some pipe bursting issues and mm-hmm. we're just glad you're here and we're glad you're safe. Well, so thanks we'll- for uh, thanks for rescheduling and allowing it to come. So life is way better. I mean, when it all came to an end, it, it was 75 degrees on the Saturday after it all stopped. And I'm like, wow. And it was all of a sudden just gone. Everything was just gone. So. Life's well, normal. that cold weather can really make you appreciate 75 degrees, can it? Yes, absolutely. Well, Dennis, do us a favor. And uh, I mean, like Jim just said, you know, we're, we know you pretty well, but uh, why don't you go ahead and you know, give us a little background about ABC and uh, maybe your time in the industry? Okay. Um, I grew up in this industry. Uh, my dad was uh, <clears throat> originally, he was going to be a military guy and uh, 
my grandfather on my mother's side had a mattress business and he passed away really early. And they asked my dad to please leave the military and come back and help run this mattress business. Um, so he did. But the problem was that he had an entrepreneurial spirit and wanted to do a lot of changing. And my grandmother was very much hey, if that's not the way her husband did it, she didn't want to change anything. And at one point he said, look, you either get out of my way and let me run this business or I need to leave. And she said, well, you need to leave. So uh, he didn't know what he was going to do. And he found a, a one man uh, operation called ABC Pest Control in San Antonio. Um, and he bought it. You know, didn't have anything, didn't know anything about pest control, but, and he went home and told my mom, like, you know, I think I'm going to buy a pest control business. And she's like, what do you know about pest control? He said, nothing, but I can learn. So um, he took it over and the, the, the one man stayed with him just a little while. And then it was just dad and dad grew from there. He was a, a really good, strong entrepreneur. Um and he grew at one point. Um, Dad was the largest independent pest control business in the state of Texas. Um, and so that was pretty cool. Um, Dad was also hyper involved with NPMA, as you guys know. So he's a past president. And uh, waste management way back then was getting into the pest control business. And they were buying pest control businesses around the country. And they did um, something they, they thought was pretty smart. They just went around basically at every old uh, NPMA president and tried to buy their business. So um, <laughs> they, they made a run at dad. And, and I think what made dad um, say yes or a part of it, I mean, obviously there's the money, right? But the other part of it is that uh, they wanted his involvement. They, they wanted to have him help run this national company. Um, so that, that, you know, fluffed his ego pretty good. And, and, and so the money and the ego were in alignment. And so he, he went ahead and, and did it. Uh, I was working for my dad at that time in San Antonio when he sold. Um, I went to Texas A&M. All of us went to Texas A&M. Um, and I studied entomology. So I'm, the other two got either agribusiness or business. And, uh, and I went to the entomology school. Um, Went to work for them. Uh, they eventually transferred me to Nashville, Tennessee. And um, dad was president in Nashville the year that I was working in Nashville, right? So they bought him as he was coming into his presidency. And so that was kind of fun. I mean, we enjoyed being in Nashville. I was there for one year. They gave me a raise at the end of one year. Dad always knew, We all of us always knew that our eventual plan was that we would go to a new city. Dad would help us get started. Um, and then we would just pay him back for the rest of his and even after his life to our mom. Right. So, you know, I was there for one year. I was a 26 year old punk kid uh, at the end of that year. And they gave me a really, really nice raise. And I literally the day after I got the raise turned in my resignation because I loved Nashville. Um, and I really thought and, I, you know, the money was really good for a kid my age back in 1989. And, um, and I'm like, if we don't leave now, we're never going to leave. So I told my mom, told my parents, we packed up, we left. Um, so mom and dad decide they're going to come and help us move. Right. And uh, so this story I'm telling you right now, I want you to know that I'd been in business for 25 years before I ever told my brothers this story, because quite frankly, I was somewhat embarrassed by it. Right. So we, we head off down the road and, and dad, we get to hot springs, Arkansas and dad's like, Hey man, you know what? I want to take some time. We need to dream together. We need to think together. Well, my wife was trying to get a job as a teacher 
And so she had appointments to, to get interviews and, and, and she's like, Hey, Bob, I, I have interviews. And he's like, that's okay. You can reschedule them. So we stop in hot Springs, Arkansas for about six days. Um, then we start headed to Dallas and we're, we're just on the outskirts of Dallas and I can see the Dallas skyline and we need gas. And as I'm getting ready to get off the road, dad says, you know what, son, I'm ready to go home. Uh, I need you to take mom and I to the airport. Now understand I'd been in Dallas one other time in my life. I was probably 10 or 12 years old when I'd been to Dallas. I didn't know what the hell Dallas was. I didn't know anything about it. I didn't have a place to stay. I didn't have anything. And I'm pumping gas into Jennifer's car. And she's like, what's going, what's going on? She could tell something was wrong. And I'm like, um, they're leaving. And she goes, what do you mean they're leaving? We're taking them to the airport right now. So our next stop was Love Field in Dallas, where we then said goodbye to mom and dad. And I mean, I'm sitting here with my wife and my daughter and my dog and a, a car and a moving van. And I'm like, well, where the hell are we staying tonight? What do we do next? Where the hell do I go? I got no idea. I mean, he didn't even like, let's get you settled in a hotel and then I'll leave. It was take me straight to the airport. So anyways, fast forward, um, you know, however many years, I guess we're at 32 years ago from now at this point. And dad died in 1998. And in 1999, uh, we were all three, my brothers and I and our wives were all down at my our family ranch. And I was talking to the brothers. I'm like, hey, man, um, I think we need to establish our territories, right? They're like, no, 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 no. Dad established those territory years ago. We don't need to worry about that. I'm like, well, I've got an account and it's in whatever the hell town I said in this town, which one of you guys services it? And they both said, I do, that's my area. And I'm like, okay, maybe we need to get out a map. So um, over on my wall, just over here is the map that is, was signed in 1999 while we, that we drew. Now the problem was we drew those lines on highways and highways split cities. So back then it made sense, but then all of a sudden a year ago, or more like two years ago, it became a really big problem between the other two yahoos uh, that were uh, all arguing over a, a little Texas town called Huntsville. So it took a while to get them to agree. But here on January 7th of this year, we all were at the ranch and we I had done all the work to get the population from t t uh, 20 years ago and the population now of each county and then we tried to look at it and we tried to be more even and we redrew the lines and we re-signed a new map that is now hanging on my wall. And then I took a copy to them uh, as well. So that's the history, I guess. That's enough of it anyway. We each have our next generation involved in the business. So, you know, the story will continue. I just love these stories. And I love how the, um, you know, and this is true for a lot of pest control companies, you know, the, the history of the, um, of the company is actually part history, part business history, but part family folklore, you know? And so we know, uh, we know you, Dennis, uh, as an NPMA pest president, like your father, but also like both of your brothers. And so um, it's, it's really, uh, it's really neat to hear these stories. And I know that they're going to appreciate you telling these stories for our podcast. I don't think they're going to appreciate me telling, but, but here's the thing. They may not appreciate it. They will not be shocked. <laughs> Well, that's such a fascinating history. Like Jim said, that's always my favorite part of this is to learn people's histories of how they got into the industry and especially the family aspect to all of it too. So, I, you know, thanks so much for, for being on. Uh, 
so what we're going to do now is I'm going to give you a quick rundown of what to expect with all of this. So the, the idea here is that each one of us, and we're going to ask that you be gentle with us as an entomologist yourself, be kind to us. Um, <clears throat> so we, we are only entomologists by name, barely in practice. So we barely know what we're doing here, but what we've decided to do is once a month we go through and we scour news articles and recent publications to each one of us find something that we find interesting or relevant uh, that we think that would be worthy of sharing with uh, the general public. Um, so each one of us is going to go through and uh, share that information. To make it a little interesting, we only have about five minutes to do that. So it's we're going to be timing this to make sure that we don't get too wordy. I think it's like three minutes now because I took way too much time at the start. Oh, no, no, <laughs> you're totally fine. You're totally fine. So uh, we're going to go through and uh, we'll each have about five minutes to summarize that paper. What we need from you is uh, to sit back, enjoy, feel free to uh, pick us apart if you need to. It shouldn't be too hard. Um, but ultimately, at the very end, uh, you know, let us know who you think did the best job or who the quote unquote winner is. Whatever the winner is, is whatever you think the winner is. If you think that it was you know, the, the best article, the best description, the biggest train wreck, whatever, whatever you want to qualify as the winner ooh, is how you ooh, biggest train wreck would be an interesting uh, category, <laughs> which is going to be quite the competition between the three train wrecks you're about to see right now. So. I would say be delicate with Jim and Mike's just fragile little egos, Dennis. I can handle it, but these two two wildflowers yeah. over here, they'll be upset. <laughs> I, I was going to say, we are sensitive flowers, so please be kind to us. We bruise like peaches. I've been around all three of you. None of you are really sensitive flowers. Come on. <laughs> oh, man. Now, now, Dennis, I will tell you that Mike is currently the uh, reigning <clears throat> bug nerd. Uh, he's the reigning nerd champion, nerd king. Um, and so he's going to go first. And then uh, Brittany and I had a spirited uh, game of rock, paper, scissors to decide who goes second. And so it will be the order of events will be Mike, then Brittany. Uh, then I will uh, just basically mop the floor with the other two as part of my presentation. Well, I, I think I think I recall I've listened to the other podcast or this this the last episode of this i think i gave some suggestions that that maybe have been adhered to or not i don't know i mean you know i i mean if i'm right or wrong i don't think that really matters at this moment it matters because i'm king and i get to make the decision so i mean hopefully you were paying attention that's all i'm gonna say <laughs> the power is in your hands you're right the power is in your that's hands. right yeah i mean we can make this really easy for him and you could just crown me king now we can save all of ourselves the time i can send you the paper later and we can just call it at that if you want to so it's completely up to you and uh, we gotta be patient <laughs> <laughs> all right well each one of us is gonna go we'll have some time to kind of chat a little bit about the paper if you have any questions about this the information that we're talking about in the paper uh, if we don't do a good job of explaining something or something just seems to not make any sense at all which is most likely going to be the case uh feel free to chime in ask us any questions uh once we get through that five minute description that sound good sounds great okay great all right so uh the the timer uh we we kind of self-timed this so i'm going to go ahead and start my timer here um and the timer officially starts after we read the title of the paper so i'm going to give you the title of my paper and then for this one i'm going to give you a little bit of background information about the science behind it and then i'm going to dive into the actual paper itself all right so the title is Dung beetles as vertebrate samplers, a test of high throughput to analysis of dung beetle eye DNA. 
All right. So there's such a joke there that I just, I can't, I, I, I don't know. I'll, I'll just, here, I'm going to pinch my mouth. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's going to be pretty easy to, uh, to lay down the groundwork for some jokes dealing with dung beetles. Trust me. All right. So when scientists want to better understand an organism or an ecosystem in general, they generally start with uh, the basic foundation or building block for that understanding, which is a biodiversity survey, which is basically a fancy word for something that's just documenting how much of something or some things are an environment. This information is incredibly useful in helping us to better understand the biology and behavior of organisms and how they interact with an environment or how they interact with each other. The challenge, though, is the way that we survey these organisms oftentimes is inherently biased. What I mean by that is, let's say we go out to the woods and we're counting the number of a single organism in an area. Well, that count, that survey may be biased because maybe only adults of that organism want to live in the area that we're counting them in. So we inherently are biasing our survey based on the adults and we're not accurately counting all of the different life stages in that area. So to overcome some of these general biases, scientists years back came up with a pretty ingenious way to start generally unbiased surveying uh, large-scale biodiversity monitoring efforts. And what they would do is they would collect what they called environmental DNA. So it would be something like a soil sample or a water sample. Once they collect this sample, they could run sophisticated analysis on that and identify the different bits of DNA left behind by organisms that interacted with that sample. Now, this technique was really useful for things in aquatic environments. Water does a great job. It's cheap. It's easy to collect. Uh, does a good job of holding a bunch of different types of DNA. Uh, so they could go through and pretty quickly grab a hold of a water sample and identify different organisms that, with a high degree of confidence that have interacted with that water sample. The challenge, though, has come with uh, terrestrial environments. So trying to do those same, uh, conduct those same unbiased general biodiversity surveys with a non-aquatic ecosystem because things like soil don't do a good job of holding on to and keeping DNA from biodegrading. So that's where this study comes in. So the study was what they call a proof of concept study. Scientists wanted to look at the potential for using dung beetles as a potential for eDNA, or in this case, they called them iDNA or invertebrate DNA. So dung beetles in their general day-to-day -day lives, they interact with a bunch of vertebrate poop. Um, as larvae, they actually feed on the poop and they can feed on multiple different poop sources depending on what those dung beetles as adults collect for the larvae. So the idea that scientists had was what if we use dung beetles, they're easy to collect, and we analyze them for potential sources of environmental DNA. So they conducted this proof of concept study to see if that was even possible. So they collected a bunch of dung beetles, they fed them a known quantity or from a known source of vertebrate DNA and tested the guts and evaluated the guts of those dung beetles to see if they could test and identify what the vertebrate DNA was that they had ingested. They could in fact do that. So the next step to this was to see if they could identify multiple different sources of vertebrate DNA from poop samples that were fed to these beetles. So they went through same proof of concept study. They fed beetles uh, a combination of five different known vertebrate uh, DNA sources. They evaluated the guts of those organisms and they found that in fact they could with a high degree of confidence confirm what different um, species of vertebrates they had uh, that were actually coming in contact with the gut contents of that beetle. So what does all of this have to do with pest control? One of the most important foundational things that we do on a day-to-day -day basis, whether it's an ongoing pest management pro uh, uh, program or it's a brand new client, is surveying and investigating and identifying pests. 
Imagine a world dentist where you step onto a client's property and you're there to conduct a termite inspection from the home. In addition to the visual inspection that you're conducting, you also collect multiple soil samples. You take those soil samples back to your truck. You run a quick analysis on the soil samples to identify and confirm uh, the presence or in most cases, the absence of subterranean termite DNA in that soil, providing an additional data point and more useful information for your clients. Well, this study didn't specifically address that question. This study was hugely important in identifying and providing information on a completely unknown potential eDNA source. It helps to advance our understanding of this specific surveying technique. It helps to unlock potential unrealized doors for helping to advance this type of survey method uh, to help us to really paint an exciting picture, picture for what the potential future of pest control could be. And uh, with a little bit of time left over, I will go ahead and close it there. Man, sometimes you just got to roll with it. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that was good. That was a little joke. <laughs> I love it. All right. Okay. So do you have any questions about the paper that I just covered? Um, I guess the only question I would have, because when you started talking about the fact that it was the, the, the subterranean termite that you were, it, you know, one of the things that they were keying on in the homes, where was the soil samples? Where were they taken? Were they taken in the yard? Were they taken around the perimeter? Were they taken near tree sources and other food sources? Where were those taken or were they totally random? So the, the final comment that I ended on was just kind of a, a painting a picture for what a future could look like with a potential surveying tool where they would mm -hmm. apply this technique. So that example wasn't actually something that the study looked at. That example was applying how the, the basis for the type of technique they're using, collecting environmental DNA, so something like maybe a soil sample, could potentially lead to evaluating the presence or absence of subterranean termites in that soil sample based on the information that they are starting to collect from this dung beetle study. So my example of collecting soil to test for the presence or absence of termites was a completely hypothetical example to kind of um, help you to, to relate what this research could potentially paint the picture of, the types of tools we could potentially develop from this research. Not that the dung beetle research actually looked at the presence or absence of termites there. Yeah. Okay. So that was just your imagination, Mike, at the end. <laughs> well, and I mean, the reason I ask is because, um, so I've got a, a brother-in-law um, who works for BASF, who's a PhD entomologist, Dr. James Austin. Um, and so he's my wife's brother, right? So um, I remember when he was first doing some research, it was looking into, you know, trying to DNA sample um, to prove whether a, a particular termite colony was the same colony that was on the house when it was treated originally, you know, in the past. Um, and I remember, you know, one of the thoughts that I had at that time was, I don't want to know. <laughs> it's like, if termites are there, I will take care of them. I don't want to increase my liability by proving that in fact, they are the same damn termites that were there when they had me come the first time. So, <laughs> Yeah. You know, that, that, it just rang that bell. So that's kind of why I asked that question. Yeah. yeah, no, absolutely. And Dennis, I have to tell you, story time, quick, quick side note, you guys. Uh, this is going to count towards your time. No, 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 no. That's why I got to get it out now. I got to get it out now. So Dennis, the first time I ever witnessed. <laughs> I can't. They're <laughs> laughing so at me. There's so many poop jokes right now. <laughs> no poop jokes. 
the first time I ever Dennis witnessed. Dennis has to go at three o'clock, just so you know, Brittany. <laughs> okay. All right, real quick. Dung beetles actually rolling poop was at your ranch in Texas. It was phenomenal. Uh-huh. I have about 80 videos of dung beetles doing that on your ranch. So beyond just the phenomenal, phenomenal experience of hanging out with you, it was crazy cool. You, you didn't share those with me? I mean, I'll, I would love to see that. So I I'm going to show you guys something. I know your listeners will not be able to hear this, but if you look on the wall right there, <gasps> look at I mean, that. there's the ranch, but look, that's, that's a dung beetle picture that my daughter, Marsha painted. Oh wow. my gosh. That is beautiful. really, really cool. And, and her, her deal was, it was at a moment she wasn't all that thrilled with, you know, what was going on, the move that they were having to make. And she painted that and said, sometimes when life throws you a poop um you just gotta roll with it right so, I mean, so yeah well, he said gave that to me for christmas a couple of years ago that's amazing and, and and respect and in honor of your daughter's creativity we should just go ahead and close the competition now since the the, the article that i covered was on dung beetles Brittany, jim thanks so much for showing up. really appreciate it we'll conclude next week well, all right. So, so I, I would, uh, I would give that to you, Michael. If, if you can tell me what was wrong with the picture I just showed you, did you look at it close enough to see that there was one inaccuracy in that photo or in that painting? Was there not six legs on the beetle? Oh, there's always going to yeah. be six legs. How about we both say it at the same time and we'll see if we say the same thing. Okay. It was pushing the the dung beetle back backwards. Doing that, it. it should have been backwards. That's exactly what <laughs> yeah, I was yeah, yeah, yeah. Say. I like exactly how you just it. jumped there. in there. It, it, it's got it pushing it forward like this, like it's standing up instead of you know backwards. So I'm like, yeah. it's a great, it's a great, you know, painting. But I'm like, it's uncanny that Dennis and I are you know just linked. <laughs> And what an entomologist to be a jerk when your daughter gives you a, 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 a painting and you're like, I love this, but entomologically it's inaccurate. So you know I'll hang wrong, it up. You know it's wrong. <laughs> oh, that's funny. All right. All right. Let's I keep moving. myself now. All right. All right. I'm going to keep my, I know we're on limited time. So let me go ahead and start my timer and rein myself in. So I'm next here. Uh, Dennis, get ready. Hit your britches here. It's going to be exciting. So the title of my paper is Social Signals Mediate Overposition Site Selection in Drosophila Suzukii. You sure Alrighty. that isn't a bar fly? It's a fly. So look, I already get points. It is a fly. It is a type of fruit fly. So you're already taking my thunder. Uh, this fly, particularly. Uh, I just this think alcohol has got to be in this story somewhere. Sorry, go ahead. Alcohol's in almost all of my stories, Dennis. <laughs> but again, don't get, I'll get so sidetracked. This will take 30 minutes if we start talking about my alcohol stories. Okay. So let's, uh, we're going to break down the titles. This paper came out in February. Some scientists out of NC State published this paper, cool paper, but Drosophila suzukii. So first off the bat, we're talking about a fruit fly, right? A fly that we commonly deal with in our industry all the time. And we're talking about social signals here. So what that means, insects don't talk like us humans, right? They don't have a voice box. They don't use their voice. They communicate by sounds, but mostly by chemical communication. So we're talking about pheromones here. We're talking about, you know, for ants, they may lay down foraging trails to say, hey, I found this awesome food over here. You should follow me. Or for mating, they may say, hey, you smell like a really good bug, you should come make babies with me. So sex pheromones, right? 
so here, when we're talking about social signals, we're talking about the chemicals, and specifically, we're talking about pheromones between the same species, between these fruit flies, and we're talking about mediating oviposition sites. So oviposition just means egg laying. So we're talking about the chemicals these flies use to lay their eggs. So you probably haven't really thought about how does a bug actually figure out where it's gonna lay its eggs? Well, this paper has some interesting um, reasons behind it. So we're talking about, this is an invasive fruit fly came out of Asia. It's been in North America for about 10 to 15 years, but it's really unique because unlike the fruit flies that we typically deal with in our industry, you're really gonna be looking for the source, right? Rotten fruit, something that's attracting them. This fly is even more of an issue because it will actually lay eggs and destroy fruit that's not even ripe yet. So it can get into homes, can be a problem occasionally, but it causes huge like crop loss, a huge issue because it can lay eggs and ripe fruit as well. And so what these researchers were trying to figure out is first, why do they even choose specific fruits? So it's typically uh, these flies really like berries. And why do they pick these particular plants? And what was really interesting is they found that this species of fruit fly, the females are super picky. So imagine your toddler doesn't wanna eat their broccoli. These flies do not like it at all if another fly touches their fruit. So they'll literally, they can pick up the chemical smell and be like, this is super stinky. I don't like that this female has already touched this fruit. And so they'll go lay their eggs in a different piece of fruit. So what this means is that they can lay eggs in multiple pieces of fruit because they don't want fruit that's been touched by another fly. So really picky, snotty um, fruit flies, females we're talking about here. And they use their ovipositor and they actually, the, the egg laying thing. So a lot of people are like, that's a stinger. No, it's actually a female insect typically with their ovipositor that they stick into the fruit. It cuts the fruit open to lay their eggs. Um, so what this means for pest control is while this might not be like our typical fly species we deal with, we really have to think about the future and how do we even come up with these products? They're super specific sometimes for even a species. So the researchers, this is like the first step. Science sometimes is tiny little steps that we use to figure stuff out. They figured out, okay, females don't like this chemical. Now they need to figure out what the heck is this chemical? Can we produce it? If we figure out what it is, if we put this chemical on the fruits, can we keep the flies from laying eggs inside the fruit and destroying it? So if we can actually take this bug's biology and use it against them, like we do with so many like termites, for instance, baits, we use their biology against them. If we can figure out how to do that with fruit flies, we won't have to spend all of our time searching for nasty fruit and figuring out what we need to get rid of to kill them. And that's my time. Awesome. So Dennis, Jim, last, uh, our last recording, Brittany <laughs> talked for about 35 minutes and I just want to commend her right off the bat for a, for four minutes and 33 seconds of, I, I was actually kind of thinking, oh, wait, that's all you have to say? Because last time you spoke a <laughs> lot longer than that. Well, last time we got into like her childhood and how, you know, it's just so many historical facts that led to she, her. She should probably thank me because I took up all the time at the start. So, <laughs> Well, your stories are so much better. I don't want to ramble on about all my childhood fears. And of course, I've got fruit fly stories, but I was told that I needed to 
not share every story that I had. So I'm Brittany, trying. I've lived a lot more life than you have. So I, of course I have better <laughs> stories. <laughs> oh, you just wait, Dennis. <laughs> I didn't really have any questions. It was, it was good. I, I you know, um, you know, I kept going to all kinds of bar fly uh, thoughts in my head about, you know, the right fruit and the, the, the bar and, you know, what attracts them and sex pheromones. I mean, all of that happens at the bar, I think, with or without flies. So anyways. <laughs> and it usually ends in a poop emoji. <laughs> I think so. I mean, then, so you know, it become full when, circle. When the, the, <laughs> the, the guy leaving by himself looks like a dung beetle rolling his, <laughs> door, his stuff out right, the door. Exactly. <laughs> Our first bleep on the podcast. There we go. <laughs> That's a good bleep. I'm glad it was me. <laughs> All right. So um, uh, thank you, Brittany and Mike, for um, for getting Dennis warmed up. And Dennis, you can just settle in now because this is going to be this is going to be fun. Um, I uh, I'm going to uh, talk to you a little bit about um, my whoops my uh, my paper which is, um, I'll start it up. This was a paper that was recently published in the Annals of the Entomological Society of America um, out of the University of Kentucky in Joe Zoo's lab. It's titled Managing Corpses from Different Casts in the Eastern Subterranean Termite. So, you know, um, Eastern Subterranean Termites are the most widely distributed and most common termite in the United States. And some colonies can grow to as many as 5 million individuals. And in those extremely large colonies, it's estimated that as many as 70,000 termites could die in a colony each day. And so as a result, corpse removal is an important job that's perform performed by worker termites called undertakers. Um, it's important for colony health because the longer a termite corpse remains in the colony, the greater the chances are for disease spread. Um, so uh, undertaker behavior is really important for colony health. Um, now, Eastern subterranean termites have, have developed two distinct behaviors to deal with their dead. One is cannibalism and the other is burying the dead. So eating the dead actually provides an important service for the colony by recycling nutrients back into the colony. Um, since wood is their primary food, um, and it's notoriously lacking in nitrogen. By eating the dead, the nitrogen in the termites themselves are then recycled back into the colony. Additionally, gut symbionts that are necessary for digesting cellulose are also re recycled. Now, burying behavior, on the other hand, ensures that the threat of pathogens and disease are eliminated from the colony, which is especially important as a corpse begins to age. So when a term, so the, the researchers here have determined, you know, determined that as uh, when a termite dies, it begins to emit certain chemicals. Um, some of these are odors, and some of these are other chemicals that are detected um, through close contact. Um, uh, an airborne volatile compound um, are released immediately. Um, some of these are uh, chemicals called three octanal. Volatile chemicals tell the workers that there's a there's a dead body, and they need to and it needs to be taken care of. Um, these chemicals do tend to, uh, don't persist and they tend to dissipate over time. Additionally, um, a number of fatty acids are also produced. Um, these chemicals tend to build up over time. Now, the relative amounts of these volatile chemicals and these fatty acids that are found in a corpse 
can give information about the age of the corpse to those undertaker worker termites and it helps them determine what to do with a dead body. So what the researchers found is that new corpses um, are eaten if they're less than 64 hours old. That means there's a, uh, when they detect the higher levels of these volatile compounds and lower levels of the fatty acids. The older corpses that have higher levels of fatty acids and lower levels of the volatiles um, are dealt with in two ways, either by burying them or actually by physically like sequestering them and walling them off. Um, it turns out that they found that all old worker corpses, worker termites that are dead and they've, uh, they're older than 64 hours dead, um, are buried. They're covered up in, at least in this lab um, research with feces, sand particles, etc. Soldiers, on the other hand, are buried 50% of the time, and they were also walled off about 50% of the time. And this walling off behavior is actually just um, closing up a tunnel and sealing them in that tunnel. I um, mean, this, this is kind of a holdover from kind of the natural world where soldiers are typically uh, dying from defending the colony. And by walling it off, they're actually building a safeguard against uh, whatever it is that's invading the colony. Now, um, it's interesting that, um, that workers always produced more of these volatile compounds upon death. And so were dealt with more quickly than the soldiers. Now the authors hypothesized that this was because of the greater proportion of workers in a colony because there's so many of them. So they need to be cleaned up first. So, uh, you know, at first glance, the practical implications of this type of research um, might not seem so obvious, um, but it does tell us that termites are using, uh, tell us that termites are not using visual cues like we do to determine the age of a corpse. So for instance, a good example would be when the gang from the Goonies, recall that movie from the 80s, uh, found One-Eyed Willie on a ship after they were being chased by the Fratellis. They knew that One-Eyed Willie was dead just by looking at him, not sniffing him. Um, Termites, on the other hand, would have used chemical cues to know that one-eyed willy needed to be buried and not eaten. So this kind of research I put into like the cool to know category, but it actually could impact the future of pest control because if we have a better understanding of how termites deal with their dead, the cues that they use and the behaviors that that elicits in termites, you could imagine how this knowledge might be used to enhance termite exposure to biological or chemical control products in the future. That's it. So, all right. In full disclosure, I went 34 seconds over. So minus 34 uh, okay, million right. points for me. <laughs> but I guess the only question I had for you, Jim, is, is I mean, how long does it take for a termite body to decay? Um, you, you know, that's it. I mean, because chitin is going to last a long time as chitin. Yeah. Um, so for the for the exoskeleton, right? So that's gonna that's gonna stick around. And yeah. you know, we think about like the the insect collections. I see them on your wall, saw it on your wall behind you, and each one of us entomologists have been, you know, and that exoskeleton lasts, I don't know, indefinitely, right? I mean, there's there's specimens in museums that are hundreds of years old, mm -hmm. but you got to think about all the the stuff inside, right? So all the muscles and everything else, um, the fat bodies, that's all gonna decay. And if there is some sort of a pathogen that killed that critter. Um, the longer that it, that it kind of sticks around, the more likely it is for that pathogen to be spread. And so that's, I thought it was really an amazing kind of um, uh, behavior to either, you know, eat it if it's fresh, but if not, just get rid of it. And that's the, that's 
what, what these termites are doing. Right. So I, I think I, I, in order to try to bring this to, you know, like, like the, the layman, I, I needed to rename each one of your research papers. Cause I mean, you know, when you go into entomological and you start talking scientific names, I mean, a lot of us bug dudes out here um, fall asleep. So here, here's what I've got. Here's, here's what I, I decided to rename them. Um, we're going to start with, with Michael's. Um, the truth is in the poop. <laughs> All right, so that's that's what I'm calling that paper. The truth is in the poop. Okay, that's a modern um, live by right there. Yeah, I, yeah, you know, Brittany, yours is barfly social behavior. <laughs> I love it. And Jim, yours is bring out your dad. <laughs> I think we should rename them every time. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, this is a great. Uh, yeah, bring I it like to this. bring it to layman. You got to get it to the layman. You got to have a, a title. You know, most paper titles are not something that anybody other than another entomologist that might have a PhD because I have a BS and I, I it's gone. I, I don't, I don't, you know, so, um, so I think renaming is, is a good, that'd be a fun exercise if you guys wanted to yeah, continue. I think that. I'm going to have Dennis start renaming all my talks now too. <laughs> it is funny. You know, you, you hear those um, and, and we asked each other to um, as, as part of this, to read the title um, because it's a little bit comical sometimes, these titles. They're not designed to encourage you to, you know, read them. It's not like they don't create interest unless you are very hyper-focused on that particular thing. And so I just, when I hear some of these titles, I just, I just laugh because it's, it's, it's kind of, they're kind of ridiculous. Um, so what, what I'll tell you is this, in trying to look through them or think through them, I'll tell you that you all did an excellent job. It was, it was informative. Um, it was even entertaining. Um, it, it was relative to what we're doing. I think you did a good job of bringing it to um, the, the, the layman of the, of the pest control operator. So I think that's really important. That was uh, something. And, and I believe there was one of you that, uh, as I was listening and, and gave uh, suggestions last time, that just stayed on the scientific terms, which is going to make most of us pest control operators that don't have a degree in entomology, or even some that had one that was like 30 years ago, fall asleep um, and not pay attention. And, and that person this time listened to what I had to say. And so for that reason, I am going to go with Jim. So excellent yes. job. Well, thank you, Dennis. All right. I just have to make myself feel better. This is a most improved award, Jim. This is not a competition between <laughs> us. <laughs> so it's just like when you have those 20 degree mornings and that and the 55 degree afternoons and you, you can really appreciate that 55 degree day even more. <laughs> uh, I said, I said it at the start, and it's very true. You all did an excellent, excellent job. Irrelevant. It was, it was well presented. It was, it was engaging. Everything was great. So I, I'm very, very pleased. Well, thank, thank you, Dennis, and um, and 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 thank you to Mike and Brittany um, at, for doing a less excellent job than me. <laughs> um, <laughs> I didn't. Uh, yeah, never mind. I'm going to just leave it right there. I got things to do, places to go. You get to choose the winner however <laughs> but, you want. It's, it's, this is all you. But that's yep. what you said. That's what you said at the start. So, um, but Dennis, really, thank you so much for joining us um, this afternoon. 
uh, we, we really appreciate it. It was, it was a lot of fun. Um, it's always fun to, uh, to chat with you. And I know that our listeners um, uh, enjoy, um, enjoy learning a little bit more about your business and about your, you know, the, the history of ABC. Um, we really do appreciate everything that you do for the industry. And, uh, and, and we look forward to seeing you again in person soon. You know, there's nothing, nothing like our industry anywhere out there. It's just the coolest. So it was completely my pleasure. Thank you for having me and uh, look forward to seeing you guys soon too. Thanks so much, Dennis. Great. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Thank you.